you would, please take your Bibles out and open to the book of the Romans, book to the Romans. We continue our study this morning looking at Romans chapter 13. Actually, we began looking at Romans chapter 13 last week with regards to the law and authority, how Christians are to interact with authorities and how we're to view it from a biblical perspective. And true to human nature, not too long after it's over, I got the, but what if questions. And I just, I chuckled to myself because it is our nature. It is our nature to look for the loophole and the caveat. But what if this? What if that? What if, the, what if this or that? And, and I get it because I'm the same way. I can be strong-willed myself, and yet it is funny to me how clear the paragraph actually is, even though there are a few what-ifs if we're going to live the Christian life. This morning, I want to, I, I, it's so easy to look at the present paragraph starting in verse 8 that ends in verse 14 as something totally separate from what we looked at last week, which is the law and how Christians relate to the law. But I, I don't want us to do that. I, I want us to hold these things together because we're going to see, and I'm going to tie it back in, but this is not completely separate from what we've already looked like with regard to how Christians interact with the governing authorities, how we view governing authority, and, and when we are to obey and, and when we're not to obey. What, what, the, what the present paragraph this morning does is it gives us some foundational stones that are the overarching concepts for how we live in general, whether it's with regard to ruling authorities or whether it's with regard to person to person. Paul makes a big deal on the concept of, of love. And, and we've already talked about many times how often cliche love is in our culture. And, and the way that people use that word that doesn't actually get at the heart of what the word love really does mean. Love has value, and I mean the word love has value. It has a specific way in which we are to understand it, and most often we do well if we would equate the word with sacrifice to give ourselves over for the, for the sake of, of love. Well, that, that shapes how a Christian views everything, and so it should not be lost on us that as Paul talks about how we relate to governing authorities, he immediately transitions into the concept of love, bringing us back around what is the heart of Christian faith? Is it to be solid theologically? Sure, it's, it's good to be that. Is it to be grounded biblically? Absolutely, we should be. The heart of Christian faith is love. And remember, when I spoke about stewardship some weeks ago now, where, do, where, do, where, do we, where does John ground that type of generosity in love and the cross and Jesus giving his life for us? So how do we justify our own generosity one to another? Well, in the example of Christ before us of loving and giving himself, and it's not different here this morning. So without further delay, let's turn our attention to the text itself. This morning we're looking at Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 14. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. 
Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, nor in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So as the reading of God's Word, may He add His blessing. Let's take a moment to pray preparation for this. Father, thank You for this Word and let the, let the idea of love wash over us afresh this morning. We've, we've already sang songs about your love and how it should affect us. And so may it, we pray, let your love wash over us anew and convict us where we need conviction, transform us where we need transformation, and renew us where we need renewing. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. One of the most reprehensible facts that I, as a human being, that I think that exists is the idea of abuse, that people abuse other people, whether it's spousal abuse, whether it's child abuse, whether it's any form of abuse I don't like. And this is going to sound horribly obvious because it's awful. Abuse is awful. It's bad. It's bad relating. It's a bad mentality. It, it leads to horrific things, and people who are abused, oh, yes, we get over it. We move on. But it never leaves you. There, there, there's a scar there forever because abuse is awful. If you are sitting in this room this morning and you have been abused, I, I bleed with you because it's terrible that it exists. But that it does exist is very telling about human nature. Oh, but humans are basically good. We could simply point to abuse alone to debunk that theory. If humans were basically good, we wouldn't abuse each other. We would be looking for ways to really love each other if humans were basically good, but humans aren't basically good. We have to be taught. Isn't it crazy that people have to be taught, hey, you can't, you can't abuse these people. It seems crazy to the, the, the mind that's not a sociopath. To the sociopath, it seems quite normal. Much, now I'm going to say this real quick, and I'm not going to camp out here, I'm just going to say this. There are some things that our culture might call abuse that are not actually abuse or neglect. Disagreeing with someone's ideology is not abuse. Asking someone who doesn't have a fully formed mind to hold off on decisions that are going to affect their life is not abuse or neglect. That's a different conversation. I'm talking about abuse, real abuse, where people are really hurt and harmed by real people doing really bad things. And, and for most people, when we think about that type of abuse, let's just use child abuse as, as an example. It's repugnant. It's repugnant to think about hurting or harming a child. Most normal people think, oh, I don't, I don't even like to see it portrayed on TV. It's just it's hard to look at when you think of a defenseless person being harmed. Why is it repugnant? Because, well, there are laws in place, and those laws say it's wrong, so therefore we think it's bad. No, there are laws in place because we already think it's bad. In other words, if you talk to most normal parents, 
And they're not saying, you know, we love our new baby, and because there are laws in place, we're not going to abuse them. That will never come out of a normal person's mouth. You know why? They don't need laws to tell them not to abuse a child because they love the child. Loving husbands and wives don't need laws to tell them not to hurt each other. You can get really mad at your husband or wife. You can get really mad at your kid. But but I'm telling you, when, when you cross the threshold of to abuse, something's wrong. And we don't need a law to tell us that it's wrong. We know it internally because it violates an innate law of love. It just does. We understand that fundamentally. So what is a primary motivation against abuse? Is it law? I mean, it can be a deterrent, but the primary motivation not to abuse people that you love is that you love them. And so, we refuse to harm others because we love them, not because it's prohibited. In this way, love and law, love and justice become synonymous. Justice in this way becomes fueled by, founded upon love. Now, if generally speaking, we are law-abiding as citizens, and we should be, as Paul argues for in the previous paragraph, we've got to see that foundational to God's law is love, right? And it's, it's it's going to feel cliche to say it, but love is the essence of justice. That feels cliche to say, but it is. Love is the essence of justice. We want to talk about justice in our world, we could just as easily have a conversation about love because you don't separate those two categories out. When God calls the children of Israel to be just people, to be just toward the widow and to the orphan, to be just in a society where there are laws and people, what he's doing is he's saying, you need to be a loving people. You need to be loving people well. And so when we start thinking about justice, beloved, we can't think about justice without thinking about love. Just like, we can't really think about love without thinking about justice to some degree. These terms become synonymous. If we're going to focus as Christians, and we should be, focus on how we love God and how we love our neighbor better, it will make, it will make a large impact on justice. Just like people will say, and, and again, this feels cliche, but it's not wrong, <laughs> Well, if we can, we don't have to make impacts in the world. If we can just impact a few people around us, we will make change in our world. It feels cheesy when people say that. I admit it. But they're right. If we could do well to love the people in our sphere and treat them justly, beloved, that makes a ripple effect, or a ripple effect in our world. It makes an impact in our world because we're affecting real people in real time with real love. No matter who it is towards, justice is served when we seek to love them well. Why? Because Paul says that love is the fulfillment of the law. That sounds awfully simple. But see, a lot of the issues in our world could be made a little easier if we allowed the simple solution to be presented and not try to make it more complex than it is. But usually, complexity equals job security for other people. So we'll, we'll let that just sit there for now. We'll come back to that some, some other time. 
When we understand that the bedrock of justice is love, I want to say it, we don't need classifications of justice. We don't need to call something social justice if we are aiming at justice. Because if we are aiming at justice, we're aiming at love. And if we're aiming at justice and love, what one of the very first things we're doing is aiming to love and care for the most vulnerable in our midst. We don't have to have a whole separate classification of some other type of justice to talk about justice and to talk about love. Let's just talk about it the way the Bible talks about it. The Bible doesn't classify justice. It just calls it justice because it understands that justice is not layered. It's a real thing where we really want to love people well in our sphere. And that's going to mean doing certain things that serve them in certain ways at certain times. Some of it is more spiritual. Some of it is more pragmatic. But we don't need a whole other classification. In other words, beloved, this is where sometimes the Christian church allows the world to influence its vocabulary where we need to, we've been taking words back lately. Let's take this one back. Justice. It doesn't need to be classified. It just needs to be explained as the Bible's call to live rightly in our world by loving God and loving our neighbor, and what that's going to look like in different contexts is going to be different. How do we love our neighbor well? How do we love our neighbor well in our workspace? How do we love our neighbor well if you're in school? How do we love our neighbor well in our neighborhoods? How do we love our neighbor well in our marriages and families? How do we love our neighbor well in our friendships? How do we love our neighbor well who has no political agreement with us whatsoever? All of it is justice. All of it is love. We don't have to recategorize it. Just let the Bible tell us what the categories are. Justice. Love. And when we see that justice is the fruit of loving people as God calls us to love them, we begin to understand what justice is. Culture wants to hijack words because when we hijack words and we redefine them, beloved, it creates divisions. And what better thing to do to a people group than to divide them over issues that some of them are a mirage? They're not real. Because when you start breaking down, I bet if I were to bring in somebody who's very committed to social justice and talk to a very committed Christian who wants to love people, it would be interesting to me that eventually you guys would probably do this. Because once you wade through all the unnecessary stuff that's out there and you get to the core of what ideas are and things mean, we begin to see that really I want to love people well. I want to be, do right towards people. That's what Paul is driving at here. So this helps with any sort of racism accusations or whatever the phobia de jour is. We're always phobic about something these days. And so often it's people who are trying to say, well, we want justice, but we want it our way. And it's like, well, it doesn't work that way. Justice is objective because justice gets that there's a right and there's a wrong. But if we're pursuing justice, I'm not saying this is going to lead to a conflict-free life because we also live in a culture where people say, well, that's your truth, this is my truth, and we have to deal with that, as silly as that is to me. But it does give us a bedrock of something objective. Why is it good not to be racist? Because people are made in the image of God. 
Why is it good not to mistreat people and, and show hatred toward them? Because people are made in the image of God. This is the base level thing. That is the very basis of justice, the basic level of justice. And then we build from there on how do we love this person well in this moment in this context. And justice demands hard things, right? Justice demands we say hard things. Justice demands also that we sacrifice. And so, with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see, and it's this, that walking in love is living in the light. That walking in love is living in the light. When, when we look at this, Paul is laying out the, a law, the law, right, the law of love, as he comes back around to this idea of the law and love and how they coincide, they come together to form this idea and that love is the, the essence of both law and service. So we think about how do we serve people well, we're going to come back to love. When we think about what does it mean to really walk in the precepts of the law, we kind of come back to love. And so love stands over these two ideas. When we think about the, the ministry of Jesus Christ who comes to the earth, he shows his love for humanity and his love for the Father. How? Well, by the same idea, fulfilling complete justice, becoming accursed by the law so that we stand in right relationship to the law. So in other words, loving us by sacrifice, loving God through obedience and beloved, that intersects each other for redemption to happen. Amen. Hallelujah indeed. Because redemption happens when justice and love truly intersect and they create a new humanity. So Paul continues, he's building in verse 8 here on the argument that he's already started making in verse 7. I'm going to back up and read verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. So there's that word owed. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. And then he builds here. Owe no one anything, which just seems odd. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So when you start looking at what is, what is, what is a, a thesis statement here, what is the premise of this, this paragraph, this idea of love, love does become the overarching command for Christians. And I want to start right off the bat, uh, one of the first things you want to deal with here, and this is a, a more pragmatic matter, Paul does not forbid people from borrowing money in verse 8. That's not what that's about. When he says, no one, owe no one anything except to love each other, after he's already said, pay what you owe, whether taxes or revenue, we understand that the principle here is not about lending or borrowing. The principle is faithfulness. So as a Christian, even in the pragmatic matters, we need to be faithful. If we owe someone something, we should pay it back, i.e., we don't have this idea of long protracted debts and, and, and money lending out there that we are faithful as human beings to love people well enough to pay them back. That's the idea. I'm not going to camp out there because that's not what this is about. What Paul does say is a debt that should stay constant in our lives is a debt to love other people. We, should, we owe other people love, that we are we're faithful in the way in which we pay back but what we owe, 
But another thing that we're supposed to be doing, beloved, that shouldn't be questioned is how we love each other. And that's loving each other through differences, through conflicts. That's loving each other through, uh, though we might have a different philosophy of how things go. There are some things that Christians have to agree on, but we don't have to agree on everything. And so part of it is loving each other through all the ups and downs. That the one thing that cannot change about us as a people is how we love each other. That has to stay constant. And so, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So Paul gives us the essence of what does it mean to walk in the law. He uses the word here, fulfill. So what does it mean to fulfill the law, to live in keeping with the law? Not so much that we're rigid, but that we love each other, that we're faithful to love each other and love God. So when Paul talks about the law here, he's talking about the Old Testament law. And so in this way, we're called to be imitators of Christ. As I've already mentioned, Christ loved the Father. He loves His people. Christ kept the law as an act of love toward God and toward humanity. And so as an act of our, our obedience to the precepts of God is not somehow trying to give us more honor, make us more lovable, make us more saved. <laughs> it's a way in which we love each other, how we treat each other. Think of the Ten Commandments alone, avoiding adultery, avoiding theft, avoiding lying, avoiding all these things that are person-to-person ways in which we love each other. Don't covet what our neighbor has. Love God well through worship. All these things become the impetus for how we love, not just checking off a list of saying, I'm right. I'm right. How are we loving? When we start looking at this, Paul builds on this. He lists the commandments here in verse 9, adultery and murder and theft and coveting and any other commandment are summed up in this word, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When we, so when we start thinking about justice, right, this word, very popular in our culture, we start thinking about justice. It really just looks a lot like loving our neighbor well. And so when we think about God's law, God's law is the sum of what real justice is. And that's not going to sound right to every ear because people who reject God, they reject His precepts, don't see His law as just. They see it as exacting. But, beloved, we were created in the image of God. That's what it says in Genesis 1 and 2. And when you look at Genesis 1 and 2 and you take it seriously, you, you see very quickly what we were created for. We were created for a relationship with the Lord, with the Lord and then eventually the Lord Christ. That's, that's our design. That's in our DNA. That's the very fabric of who we are. But what happened? Sin disrupted that, and it introduced a wrinkle within the image of God within us so that things are discombobulated now. And so the natural person, man or woman, kicks against this. They don't see justice as rightly relating to God and rightly relating to our brother or sister. What they see justice as is what works for me right now, this moment, and helps me. Because you start talking about justice with people, it's interesting how so often when we start talking about it, I'm in that equation, how this affects me. Well, sometimes we have to, well, all the time, really, let's take self out of the equation and ask ourselves, is it still just? 
Because, see, sin messes this up. We were created to be in communion with God. That's what the Ten Commandments are about. And so to love justice, really love justice, to really love justice, there has to be a starting point. How do we know what justice is? If I am the measure of all things, what is just? What I say is just in a moment. So we've got to have something objective that's beyond myself. This is, this is, just, I'm, this is just review of worldview here. How do we know what good and just and right are as concepts? We only know what they are. There can only be those concepts if there is something or someone who is just, right, and good. And that one has to be God. And that one has created us in His image, after His likeness. That one has created us primarily to be worshipers. So when we start trying to define justice outside that rubric, beloved, we are going to go far afield. Anything becomes just when I'm the measure of all things. So the Scriptures are calling us back. Do you really want to be just? Do you really want to be loving? Worship the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love Him even. There's no God. There becomes no basis for love and justice. Now, Brad, you're telling me that people who don't love God can't love? Not in the way we're called to love. They can have a very cultural love, a self-serving love. Brad, are you saying that, I mean, you know, are you saying that people won't sacrifice for other people? I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying there is a certain sense of innate godness in us because we're created in His image that human beings will do good things from time to time. But to live a life filled with the knowledge of love and justice will not happen if you take God out of the equation. You can have moments of goodness and glory, but not a constant stream and flow of the presence of God working. So that, how do we know that justice becomes fluid when you take God out of it? Because we live in a culture where people say, I can be what I want to be, do what I want to do, say what I want to say, act how I want to act, at any expense to you, and it doesn't matter because this is how I want to be. And you will love it. That's where we are. Why do you think we get to that point? Because you take the basis of justice out of the equation, and now everything is just and nothing is just. When everything is, nothing is. So we've got to have a reference point. He continues on here. He gives us the commandments, love your neighbor as yourself. That becomes the basis of justice in our midst. And then he builds on that. So love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. So love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So he's now, love your neighbor as yourself, giving us this justice basis. And so true love avoids seeking to harm or wrong our neighbor. And beloved, this is where we have to get over ourselves sometimes and say we live for our neighbor's good whether we think they quote-unquote deserve it or not. We live for their good. We live for their good in the midst of a culture 
who promotes death. And you know what this is going to require from you and from me? A lot of transformation and a lot of repentance. A lot of, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have gone there. A lot of, I need the Lord to change my own mind and heart here. Lord, I need your grace to live peaceably here. This is what that means. And so Paul kind of lays this foundation here. So we get that love is the fulfillment of the wall. We get that loving our neighbor well is really our call to justice. And so we get that loving our neighbor well is seeking to not wrong them. These are all basic level things. And so now Paul kind of ups the ante a little bit. So he, he besides this, you know in verse 11, the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. So he's telling us we are living in a period of time here that this becomes vitally important because we're called to live unto Christ in these dark days. What Paul is getting at without using the phrase is the last days, the days that are anticipating the return of Christ. However you understand the end times is not really material here. But what we can agree on, however we understand the end to be, is that Jesus is coming back. And in fact, if we take the New Testament seriously, we have to concede that Jesus could come back any moment. And so the Scripture's imperative is, is to live in the reality of that, to not just think about that theoretically, but to live like Jesus really could come back today even. And so Paul tells us to the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer than when you first believed. What is he talking about here? Salvation. Not the act of saving us, per se, but the day of the Lord. You'll find that language in the Old Testament book of Joel specifically, but not just there. But this day of the Lord, this anticipated day when Yahweh would come and make right things in the earth to wash away what is evil, to establish what is completely and utterly righteous. Paul is telling us, that day is coming. That day is nearer than when we first believed. And so how are we living in light of that? Well, Paul uses his motif that he loves to use, this put on, this put off, put off motif. Salvation is near to us when we first believed. The night is far gone. He's continuing to build on this idea. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us what? Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, or some translations may say the weapons of light. Either one is fine. So to put off the works of the flesh, what are the works of the flesh that he's talking about? He says it in 13, a very small snippet. I'm not going to turn there now for, for time purposes, but if you go to Galatians 5, you can see what the works of the flesh are. All kinds of sins that will not be a surprise to us. So he says to put off these things. Why? <laughs> Because those types of things are not loving toward our neighbor. They're not loving toward God. And guess what? They violate justice. If justice, if God is the foundation of justice, and justice is called to love God, justice calls us to love God and love our neighbor, then there are a whole host of sins that violate that principle. Let's see, we've been taught to privatize our sin and think, well, this is me. I'm not hurting anybody. But you are. You're hurting yourself. And you are affecting the way that you're going to relate to other people. So Paul tells us to put these things off. Put on the armor of light. What does that mean? Walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Walking in the light. Living in the light. 
staying in relationship with Jesus Christ. Beloved, it's never been more important. And that's just because we live now. I'm not saying it hasn't been important in ages past, but you, li- you and I, we live now. The time is now for us to live in the power and the light of Jesus Christ. The night is far gone. Day is at hand. 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Again, he's not, he's not leaving his picture, his word picture. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. 13 is very graphic, very straightforward in terms of what it's telling us. To put off the sins of the flesh. How are we going to conquer worldliness? Well, it's a it's a both and, right? It's, it's a put off and put on. It's not just put off these things that would hinder us. It's now do the positive and put on the armor of white. Ephesians chapter 6 gives us a great evaluation of what the armor of God is. But when we think about walk, walking properly, walking, living, walking in Christ, it makes no room for the flesh. How do we make no room for the flesh, beloved? It's this constant relationship building with Jesus. How do we act justly and, and live justly and, and love God and, and love our neighbor? It becomes by walking in Christ and giving no room for the flesh. Personal holiness. Robert, Robert Murray McShane, maybe you're familiar with him, died when he was about 29, Scottish preacher, wrote some, wrote some beautiful stuff. One of the things he said that sometimes it makes people raise an eyebrow, he was a pastor of a church, and he said, what my people need most from me It's my personal holiness. He didn't say that his people were saved by his personal holiness, but he was placing an evaluation on personal holiness that helps us understand how are we going to live a victorious life through personal holiness. Personal holiness is not being pietistic, and I'm using that word in its negative connotations, looking down on other people saying, why aren't you as good as me? Sometimes that's what people associate with holiness. That is not biblical holiness. Biblical holiness is not the the Pharisee looking down on the tax collector thinking, you worthless scum. Thank God I'm not like you. That is not holiness. That is legalism. That is condemning. That is wrong. Personal holiness is this idea that I want to love God well. I want to love my neighbor well. And I want the concepts of love and peace and joy to come out in my life. I owe this thought to John Stott, John Stott, the fruit of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, he points, he makes this observation, I probably said this to you before, when he looks at Galatians, and says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. What's interesting is Stott notes that the fruit there, the word fruit, karpos, is singular, it's not plural. And the first fruit he mentions is love. So the fruit of the Spirit is love. And all these other things are the outflow of what it means to love, to love God, and, and I would add to love our neighbor. That's a really good idea and a good thought, and I really like it because what John Stott is observing from the Apostle Paul is that then love becomes the foundation for all these other things that we are to possess as fruits of the Spirit. And so only in walking in these things will we deny the works of our flesh. The most effective remedy we have against worldliness is holiness that is guided by and under the power of the Holy Spirit. What do we say at the end of this? What is our final response? 
is that true love keeps us in the light and helps us serve our neighbor. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul ends this, this chapter, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In a culture so obsessed, and it is, with the idea of justice, it is almost comical how often the larger culture is ignorant to the concept. It's, it would be comical, it would be comical if it wasn't so sad with the lives it is ravaging, with people under the banner of justice doing all manner of things. I mean, my gosh, you just go to Twitter. Don't. It's an exercise in futility, but go there and see people who are, who are, who are justifying the, the horrific destruction of children under the name of, well, this is what freedom looks like. If we're going to fight for freedom, then yes, we have to destroy the most innocent of lives in our midst. And that is justice. This is justice. That ain't justice. <laughs> that ain't justice. That's something, and justice ain't it. That's called evil. That's called terror. That's called deserving of the wrath of God. And so often in objecting to what some call fascism, they'll employ fascism. You're not going to intimidate us, so we're going to intimidate you. Well, that's not how justice works. It's just not. It's not how it works. Those types of ironies get lost on a culture who has no idea what justice really is. It's just what I want it to be right here and now. And justice doesn't work that way. Love doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way. Justice and service will never be achieved by employing tyranny, ever. 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 If we want to walk in the light, that is, be in good standing with what is true, right, good, and beautiful, part of that is serving our neighbor. And that's going to be the fruit of love and nothing else. That, that love is going to fuel that, nothing else. Guilt only lasts for so long. Regret only works for so long. Just my duty, we're doing this because it's right, only lasts for so long. Until it really becomes motivated by love, it has a terminus point. Love is not mere sentimentalism, and it's not the cliche concept that culture so often speaks of. Rather, love means sacrifice of the highest order. Love means laying down our lives for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor when it would be more desirable not to or easier not to. Love says we'll make the hard choice when we have the choice to do what's right or do what's pleasurable or easy. Love calls us to justice, and there is no justice without love. Please pray with me. Father, thanks so much for this time, for this paragraph. Thank you for just being so clear on what is and what isn't justice, what is and isn't love, what is and isn't right. Father, we confess it's not always easy, and it's not always palatable, and it doesn't always make for, for fun gatherings. And yet you would call us to do what is right and good and true and beautiful and to stand there. So, Father, here we stand. Give us the confidence to do that. Give us the grace to do that. Give us the hope to stand in Jesus Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.